I landed, I, I was really just kind of quiet at first. I listened to the team. I heard what they were going through. I heard what was happening to them from their previous manager. And to kind of give you a quick what if, they would come in on Monday morning previously, and they would have a 30-minute voicemail from their manager telling them what they were going to do that week. And I just thought, that's so impersonal to sit there on a Monday morning and and hear that your boss is going to tell you what's going on for the week. And I just said, no, that, that's not it. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Cowan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Hey, everybody. Today's guest, we have Rich Stamets, and Rich is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Arch Insurance Group. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Callan. It's great to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. When you know, when looking at your career and the experience that you've had, I'm excited. So tell us a little bit about Arch and what you're doing for Arch today. Yeah, sure. So I lead distribution for Arch in the East. Arch, as you may know, is a multinational insurance company, really with a lot of specialty products, handling some of the larger and middle market accounts in the United States and abroad. Gotcha. So in distribution, a company like that, so you're the main person that's driving revenue for that side, correct? That is way too much of a compliment. I would say <laughs> I'm a part of a, a very bigger puzzle. I am a hopefully an, an enabler in a, in a pretty in an amazing machine over at Arch. I think a lot of the credit would certainly go to the underwriting team across the U.S. Uh, there is a larger presence here in the East, which I oversee, but the, it's really it really kind of boils down to the relationships and the experiences that the underwriting team has had with the brokers here in the East. So you specifically highlight underwriting. And as I understand it, your career started out in underwriting, correct? It did. Yeah. I still today, even though I, I started with a, a small little company called Atlantic Mutual, truly a mutual insurance company. But I really think that my training as an underwriter really began at Chubb. I still introduce myself as a Chubb trained underwriter. Got a lot of really nitty gritty details of understanding of how to underwrite policies, truly what the commercial lines manual is, which is really technical, really geeky. Back in those days, it was a book that was almost like four feet wide that would sit on an underwriter's desk, honestly, before the internet, which is, that's how old I am these days, <laughs> a manual about four feet wide that uh, that helped you basically price everything from automobile, property, and uh, general liability insurance. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So here's something I'd like to talk about in particular is I've spent a lot of time on in the insurance space, on the insured tech world. I haven't been personally on the carrier side, but so a lot of our listeners are across all sorts of different markets, and I've loved being in that insure tech space. Now, on the underwriting side, can you break this down a little bit? You know, why is that so important for an insurance company? Sure. Well, I think that some of the the underwriters would joke. We used to call it uh, legalized gambling. So, because the idea in that process is that you really have to assess risk from a multitude of areas. And what that means is how likely is it for something to go wrong, whether that's with a worker's comp injury, whether that's with a fire loss or a windstorm loss on a piece of property or a general liability loss, or even today's issues, which are much more prevalent in the cyber world, which that didn't even exist back in the 90s when I first got started. Cyber is super interesting because you know, I think when people started writing cyber insurance policies, like we, say, we all knew what hackers were, right? Even like in the early stages, we knew what hackers were. I don't think anybody realized the extent of just how much damage that it can actually be done. And now that market's getting, I mean, it's just in, I don't want to say turmoil. Turmoil is the wrong word. And that's an aggressive word, but it's definitely way different. I would say aggressive, perhaps in the sense of you're right. So back in the nineties, there wasn't really even the discussion too much about cyber. I think AIG probably came out one of the early cyber policies back in the late 90s, but most people didn't even understand what that even was. And then as you kind of advance to perhaps the last five or seven years where you had major hacks of major retail organizations where the data was stolen of all their customers and that information goes off to the dark web. And then then luckily and fortunately, with help from insurance companies and from the public in general, the government has decided that there needs to be really safety protocols as well as notifications. So the expense of of an organization, even just notifying their clients could be in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars just to comply with state and federal regulation. Well, go back to kind of the start of your career at Atlantic Mutual there. And I hear this the most in sales and insurance. 
Nobody starts out to go into either sales or insurance, but you end up falling into it. How did you get into it just to kick it off? I would say I had to go back to my college days when I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do when I grew up. I knew I wasn't going to be a fireman. I'm 5'8 on a good day. I knew I wasn't going to be a professional (laughs) football or basketball player. And so I had to really assess, uh, if you will, what I thought I was pretty good at. And what I thought I was pretty good at, it was that I thought I was pretty good at a lot of different things and I had a natural curiosity. So I wanted to understand how business was was run, et cetera. And I just kind of started asking around to say, well, how can I even really even apply what I want to do into the business world? And the whole idea of underwriting came up. So right out of college, and even in college, I was interviewing for a multitude of opportunities, specifically in underwriting, because that's really where I felt that my skill sets would be most appropriate. But I also learned a lesson pretty early on. And, and maybe it's just a way of me telling myself that I've learned this lesson. But back then, the folks that were really getting the positions were those people that actually knew people in the insurance industry. My parents weren't in the insurance industry. I didn't really know anybody in the insurance industry. So initially, I didn't get a job directly out of college in insurance. In fact, I ended up going into retail for about a year, and year and a half. And once you work a year or two years in the retail world, and from Thanksgiving until Christmas back then, before the internet, before when it, when people would literally the day after Thanksgiving they would show up at the mall and you wouldn't be any there wouldn't be any parking for six weeks right because everyone's out there and you as a young manager are working six days a week two 12 hour shifts per week and you just thought how am I ever going to get out of this and then learning a lesson you look forward and say well what are these folks that are doing that have been here for ten or twelve years and they were not happy with what their lives and I said I have got to refocus and get back into it so literally. I actually started reapplying for insurance opportunities, and that's when the opportunity at Atlantic Mutual came up, and I jumped on it quickly. What was it like once you started to get into it there? Fortunately, uh, the insurance companies were really, they were pretty robust in in training programs. We had a six-week on-site facility training, which really, again, you kind of got into the really really details of contract language, how to rate policies, where, how rates are developed. And when I say by rates, for, for folks that are not in the insurance industry, that basically means how do we end up charging for a particular coverage, whether that be homeowners or automobile, or I was on a, on the commercial side, so I was doing a lot of business information. But that was a, that was six weeks. You had another six months with on the job training. You came back to the home office for another two weeks of wrapping up, and then you then you basically graduated from this course, and then you were given your underwriting authority back in the field. Gotcha. So when you say underwriting authority, you were able to make more decisions kind of on your own, given the guidelines and parameters that you're around. That's right. As you might imagine, as a newbie you're on a, a pretty tight box because you may only be taking a couple hundred dollars worth of premium in, which doesn't sound like a, a lot, but if you're paying, it certainly sounds like a lot, but you might be putting hundreds of thousands of dollars of risk uh, on the company balance sheet, or as you graduate, or as you continue to grow, literally a hundred thousand, a million, 10 million, maybe a hundred million dollars worth of risk or assets at risk of the company. And obviously they want to make sure that you're making those right decisions. So you prove yourself through referrals, et cetera, and you kind of grow through the organization, you're granted higher authority as you get more and more experience. It looks like, and you mentioned specifically that Chubb is where you really learned everything that kind of molded a lot of your career in general. Why, why do you say that? Well, they offer a lot of training. In fact, not that many people will know this unless you're in the insurance world, but if you are a business owner, you should know what this term means. And there's a coverage called business interruption insurance. And really what that coverage means is if you happen to suffer a loss where that, that your building burns down or there's a windstorm loss and you can't actually keep your business going, there is a coverage that will cover that. It's called business income. Well, when I was at Chubb, I had the opportunity to study with a gentleman by the name of Bob Edgar. And Bob was basically credited for actually creating that coverage. So Chubb at that, at that time, definitely known for being very innovative. They're still a very innovative company today. But at that time, a huge emphasis on underwriting profitability to make sure that you were making the right decisions. That again, that's just it just became part of who you were. So a couple of things that I think are interesting is that so you kind of moved up into the underwriting, right? You started out in this underwriting space. And one of the things where I, I think this really applies to any position is you understood the core product. If you understand underwriting, you really understand what the the product of insurance is. And then like, same with claims as well. You learn really quickly what's in a policy when you figure out where the money's going. Like, where are we actually paying? Yeah, you, you understand where the money's going. We're actually paying and where you're not paying. And it honestly, when it get, really gets down to it, the contractual language 
of the insurance policy is incredibly detailed. There's lawyers that'll be look be reviewing the contracts. Underwriters are trying to make sure that their intentions are actually being well made and that there's really no gray area so that you're trying to be as fair as you can to your client, but also being at the same time, understanding what's covered and what's not covered. Because at the end of the day, insurance is really just a transfer of money from the premiums of the many go to pay for the losses of the few. But the idea of that money transfer, you want to make sure that from a contractual and an expectation perspective, you're actually making money at the end of the day so that you can stay in business and so that you can help customers as as you play the long game in insurance. Yeah. So what I want to fast forward to a little bit here is, so you were at, at Chubb and then you took kind of your first, is this, would you say this was your first executive level role when you were AVP of underwriting at uh, Caliber One? I would think so. I mean, I was a supervisor at Chubb, but certainly there was a reason why I left Chubb to move on to new opportunity, which was really a startup, excess and surplus lines company. And to kind of help explain that in common speak, many standard companies like Chubb are very much regulated by state departments of insurance. And ENS companies or excess and surplus lines companies, they're less regulated by the state but they have the ability to do some things that admitted carriers are not. So having worked for Chubb, Chubb was a very, I would say, is a very organized, a very straight-laced organization in that they have, they're have they very precise in the way in which they want to underwrite their accounts. And as, as, as a good part of that is that you get a chance to really understand and hone your craft as an underwriter. What you're not necessarily doing from an excess and surplus lines company, it's a little bit more like what some people may know is like Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's of London can pretty much underwrite and insure everything. You've heard of the crazy things like XYZ Hunter off of, of whatever football company, a football organization, their leg may be insured for $5 million, right? That is not what Chubb is going to do. So the ENS world is a slightly smaller version of, of what most people think of Lloyd's. You can do pretty much anything. You have freedom of rate and form to write some interesting things. And so for me, at that time, I wanted to expand my understanding of insurance in general. And going from a company that was so studious, like a Chubb, going to an ENS world uh, certainly was very exciting to me. So this was a startup company just in general? It was a startup division within an existing insurance company. The, the company was uh, PMA. Gotcha. So this is almost like kind of an entrepreneur type of a role. Is that accurate? So what was that like? It was amazing. I, we almost kind of kid around and said it was like the wild, wild west, right? When you went from a great company like Chubb, where you were wearing the blue suits, the white press shirts, the uh, the black shoes, you went to this wild, wild west company, which was you were basically deciding what you wanted to cover in the morning, creating a Word document, and by the afternoon you were issuing a policy. That was completely different than what we what I was used to. So that speed in particular. So when you went and this comes up quite a bit, and I think this. I didn't do this, but I think that there's a lot of value to this in that we had a guest on here that had said, you know, if you're in sales, go spend a couple years at Oracle, spend a couple years at Salesforce. And a lot of what you're referring to really is that, right? You learn, I, the thing that I hear the most is how you learn, you learn scale and you really do learn scale and what that takes in order to, especially Chubb, Chubb's kind of a gold standard company in the, in the insurance space. How did you like that change to this? Because the pace had to be, I mean, as you mentioned, like night and day. It was crazy. I mean, so I was employed, I think, number 20 at this new company where, where Chubb, I don't know, I was probably employee 7,000. And that's a complete guess. I have no idea. <laughs> we basically knew that we wanted to be a great company, but just started to, uh, we just had to grow. So the idea was, you're, I, was gonna, I was really in charge of helping to grow a territory, not in charge. I was shared that responsibility with some other folks, but we were brand new and it was the objectives were go build a business between Chicago and Houston. We don't have any brokers assigned to us. We don't have any relationships, just go. So making phone calls, dialing for dollars, jumping on planes, going to meet people, sharing your wares, showing that you could do something that, that was very valuable in the marketplace. That's what we did. And I would say that it was great for as long as it lasted. It was very exciting working long hours, getting in early, working long, late hours at night, weekends, whatever it might be. It was fun because the energy just was was incredible. What were some of the challenges that you had coming from these large organizations, very structured, to moving to this startup environment where it's kind of, here's your structure, you go follow it, you create the structure, and let's see what becomes of it. Yeah, no. So I think that is such a great question because what I learned is something that I've actually carried through for me that's, that'll be a, a lifelong lesson. And that is 
no matter what business that you're trying to do, as long as you're in insurance, there are certain insurance principles that will still prevail. And that, you know, you never want to take on more risk than what you think is appropriate. And you never want to underprice accounts because there is a right price to charge for some things. And unfortunately, I started to get a little uncomfortable at that company because we started going after some crazy business at the time, nursing homes. And nursing home business was really, I would say, was going a little bit under attack for some very good reasons and for some not very good reasons. People die in nursing homes. Well, guess what? People can sue for almost anything. And because your father or your mother or your aunt or brother has fallen in a nursing home, they're going to say that it's negligence, that it was the, the nursing home was negligent. And some of the jury cases that were coming back at those time were astronomical. And the legal folks had jumped on that. You had attorneys in Florida and Texas basically advertising on billboards saying, hey, if your loved one's been injured in a nursing home, call us because we will sue and get you money. Well, when you're charging, say, a couple hundred dollars per bed, was really the going rate back then. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you're getting these astronomical $10, $20 million claims that were coming back. You just can't survive in that. And that's unfortunate. That was really what happened to that company. So again, the lesson learned is that these underwriting principles remain true. And no matter what you do, whether you throw technology at an insurance, whether you change your distribution, those insurance, those underwriting principles still have to apply in order to have longevity. So if I'm hearing correctly and I'm zooming out a little bit, you could almost apply that to anything, that certain principles have to be there. Insurance, it's magnified just because it's one of the only, it's one of the, you know, I had a conversation the other day and we were talking about, it's like, you know, it's insurance and and he had also brought up um, lending, right? They're the only two businesses where, you know, you get penalized for selling too much. If you sell too much and you've got too much out there, it doesn't take one thing in the market if you're lending or one catastrophic event that can take the whole company down, depending on, you know, where you've written all that business. Yeah, I would say that both lending commercially uh, from a banking perspective and from a underwriting commercial insurance perspective we're probably the only industries that really don't know the cost of the product that we've sold until years after it's been sold, right? So, you know, if you're, let's, I'm going to simplify this, like when you're selling socks, you know what your expenses are, you know what cost of materials, you know your shipping, you know all those things, right? You know how much money you can make. With insurance, it's completely different in that you say, well, I think based on historical assessments that this rate could be $100. Well, you don't know if the right price was really $80 or 120 And if there's no loss, if there's no fire to that building, you think, oh, well, I'm really smart. I did. I really made the right decision. Well, if that building burns down, did you really make the, the right decision and did you get the right price? So you're not sure, because, but you have to aggregate all of your wins and your losses. And hopefully at the end of the day, you're making more money than what you're paid out. What drew you to that business? Why was that intriguing to you? Great question. I, I just really think that it was, you just don't know. You don't know... I get bored pretty easily. And I think if I knew everything about my business, I might be a little bit too bored. I don't know. So I've been in this business now for, gosh, 33 years. And I am I still learn something every single day. And I don't know if I could do that in any, any other business. That's why I love it. I've been doing it for a long time. But uh, that's what keeps me energized. That's why I've kind of moved either from underwriting over to sales or to whatever role I happen to have at the time. There's always something to learn in insurance, for sure. Perfect segue again. So when you were when you had moved on to the branch vice president at CNA, were you leading a region in that role? Yeah. So I started off as the underwriting director first, which was sort of the middle market area uh, that I was responsible for. A good friend of mine had had brought me a former ex uh, Chubb friend had actually asked me to come and help him, basically help fix that branch because that branch was actually not doing very well. But to answer your question specifically, uh, it was it was basically just running the operations for the New Jersey office for CNA. And at that time, I think we were the seventh largest branch at CNA, but we were not doing well when I first arrived. We were losing a lot of a lot of money. That 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 loss ratio was was pretty bad. But we worked really hard over five years. What we did, we actually grew that branch by about 50% and we cut the loss ratio significantly. We went from actually losing a fair amount of money to actually making money by the time I left. So what did you do to turn that around? Great question. And I'm, I know this is going to sound like we've uh, pre-planned this answer, but it actually goes back to what I said before. It's really about the underwriting principles. At the end of the day, you really just need to be able to have and understand the risks of business that you have and making sure that you're pricing that business correctly. So that branch happened to have most of its business in the middle market area, which I had already started off in. And to be honest, it changed two different ways, is that 
I actually had to make some changes to the underwriting team, but I also had to change the mindset at the team as well. And I don't think I'm telling tales out of school too much here, but when I, I landed, I, I was really just kind of quiet at first. I listened to the team. I heard what they were going through. I heard what was happening to them from their previous manager. And to kind of give you a quick what if, they would come in on Monday morning previously, and they would have a 30-minute voicemail from their manager telling them what they were going to do that week. And I just thought, that's so impersonal to sit there on a Monday morning and and hear that your boss is going to tell you what's going on for the week. And I just said, no, that, that's not it. I'm, this is a one-on-one conversation. I want to get to know you as individuals, et cetera. And one of the things that I did is I realized that they were getting beaten up, not obviously physically, a little bit more like they just felt like they were downpressed, their audits were coming back poorly, et cetera. And I had said to the team in a meeting, I said, look, I said, I've been here now for a couple of weeks and we're changing this branch. This branch is going to move from one of the worst at CNA. It's going to be one of the best at CNA. And I looked around the room and I said, I could see the expressions on the team's face. Some of them were really excited. Some of them were really concerned. And so what I had said to them, I said, look, I said, some of you are going to be really excited because we're going to be the best branch that CNA has. And we're going to go into a different direction than where we were before. And for those of you that are, are not happy about that, I want you to be happy because you're going to be here more than eight hours a day. You deserve to be happy. And if this direction is not going to make you happy, then I think you need to go find a place that's going to make you happy. So it was a nice way to say, we're not going to be the last in the company where we're, we're moving on. And so some people embrace that. Some people had to move on to other opportunities outside the organization. And I was I was fortunate enough to bring on some heavy hitters. In fact, I was actually able to grab one of uh, Hartford's on top underwriters. They were so upset when I got that person on board. But she and herself just basically helped drive. So the entire team kind of rallied around that, that new cause. And we really became a really strong branch by the time I left. So I'd like to go back to that a little bit. How fast did you make that change? That's a pretty big sweeping change, right? And you had to know, like, most in a large company, that's hard to go in there and make that big of a change because the culture has been like that for, I mean, CNA has been, you know, and I'm not saying the whole culture of CNA was like that, but that team had probably been around for a long time and you were going to do a pretty major shakeup for a large established company. What was kind of going on in your mind as you're leading up to that? Well, I think what's going on in my mind is that that's what I want to bring to everything that I do, no matter whether it's either I'm going for a bike ride or if I'm uh, managing a team of business, I want, I, want to, I want to do my best. Otherwise, why show up, right? So for me, that was sort of the direction that I wanted to apply to the organization overall. So after you did that, how did people react? Some people absolutely loved it. And those that didn't, they moved on. They weren't they weren't happy and they found happiness at other organizations. I obviously still wish them very, very well, but it wasn't just going to work out for them. And I was super happy. So I mean that to turn an underwriting branch around, turn a branch around from an underwriting perspective, from major losses to major victories, I consider that one of my greatest turnaround stories. You know, I think you hit on something. Well, I personally believe in, and I talk about this quite a bit, is I think a lot of times we're we're afraid to make that change. I know certain scenarios where I've been afraid where I'd come in. I was like, well, I don't know that I want to shake this up immediately, but maybe I'll slow play it, right? Maybe I'll go into this and then you end up being really strict on one group and not another. And the reality is, I think you just, I, I, I totally agree with what you said. You have to go in there and you got to know that you're not going to get everybody in what really resonated in particular was you've got to be out there recruiting. If you're leading, if you want to be a really high performance team, you have to recruit because you have to be okay with people leaving your team. That doesn't mean that you're creating a negative culture and it's get in line or not. It's actually the exact opposite. Some people might not like that and that's totally okay. And the idea too is that I'm not everybody's cup of tea. That's fine. I, I try to be as nice and as as driven for everybody and supporting everyone. But I will say, I think that I was also very fair and very open about the direction. I'll, I'll give you a quick story is that one person who was not doing incredibly well, I had really almost like, I think, bent over backwards to try to help out. I told this person that they were performing at a certain level and that they needed to be at a different level and that I would come in early, I would stay late, I would help them at whatever it was that they that they needed from me, I would help them to get to that point. And I said, it, at some point, though, you've got to be able to get from, from here to another level within 30 days. And that person, they never asked me for my help. I checked with them a couple times, but I wasn't going to babysit them because I'd already had done that leading up to that point. 
And you know, each week we'd have a one-on-one, and by the end of that 30 days, I stood at that person's desk and said, I think it's time that we have a conversation. That person walked in, we sat down, and he actually apologized to me. He said, I'm sorry that I let you down. And I said, well, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but you know what's going to happen today. So obviously that person was no longer with the organization. And when I changed and moved to another company, AIG, I didn't realize that that person was there, that I had let go. Well, guess who I saw on day one was that person. And I think most people would have been like, oh, they would have thought I was a jerk. I was, I was absolutely horrible. That person could have turned around. We were in a big office building, could have turned around and walked away. He actually looked at me, locked eyes with me, walked over and gave me a big hug and said, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. We really need you. And I, I, th- I just thought, what a, what a compliment to deliver some incredibly bad news to someone, get them into a different place where they could be a bit of a shining star. And they, they actually were. He, he did really well at AIG. That's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is that, I mean, I I personally find that those individual turnarounds are like, I remember those 10 times more than I remember the organ. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the building as a team and all that, but seeing an individual person change. And it sounds like this person actually was, was very, ended up being very coachable where they weren't hit a wall. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes that's needed before you can really make true change. Sometimes you have to hit that wall. I know I've had it 100%. Let's talk about, so in AIG, is this where you really moved from kind of this underwriting to more of a distribution sales role? Yeah, absolutely. So one quick last comment about CNA and then then over to, to AIG. So it really as the CNA branch manager, you're sort of like the chief marketing officer. You are the head of sales. And you have a significant amount of underwriting influence as well. So I would say, and even going back to my Chubb days, we were called like production underwriters. So that meant you didn't have a business team that was pulling in business for you. You had to go to brokers and go find it and get it. So a little bit of that at Chubb, a little bit of that at Caliber One, and certainly over at CNA as well. So interestingly, so when AIG had called, I was still the branch manager at CNA, and I got a call and, and I wasn't really looking at the time. I was very happy, but there were some changes that were going to be taking place at CNA that wasn't going to allow me to move to the next level. So I thought, hey, I'll, I'll listen to this recruiter. I'll go have a conversation and see how it goes. I went in and I had the interview and it honestly took six months to actually even get the offer because I wasn't even sure if AIG really wanted it. And I wasn't really sure what they wanted me for, but we just had some general discussions, but I was, I was open to the conversation. So when I moved over to AIG, it was interesting because I landed at Thanksgiving week of 2007. So of those of you paying attention to what happened in 2008, my timing probably wasn't the, wasn't the best because I thought, well, AIG, <laughs> biggest insurance company on the planet. I'm moving in. Uh, I'm leaving a great opportunity at CNA. I'm, I'm stepping into, uh, into AIG. And we kind of heard like a couple of weeks later, like, oh, there's some, some rumblings that are going on at the company. We thought we're not really quite sure what's going to happen. Well, I moved from basically a supervisory role because I was I was brought on initially as someone who was going to basically be a mentor of someone to take over the small business directors and officers insurance group. So DNO insurance is somewhat of a complex, not a commonly understood product. In fact, I didn't know the product. When I interviewed, I kind of joked with the person that I was interviewing at the time, and I said, "Well, I said, folks, you have looked at my resume, right?" The only line of business that I really have no experience in is is DNL, and you actually want me to take over this team. And they had said, "Well, we want you to take it over, but we're going to give you six months worth of training." Well, when I landed day one, my new manager said, "Well, I'm leaving the company. I'm going back to New York." And I said, "No, I know. I know you're leaving in six months." He says, "No, I'm leaving in six weeks." And I said, "Wait, what? I've got to learn this business in six weeks. You've got to be kidding me." Well, within so I took over the DNO team almost immediately, and a couple of weeks later, the ENO. The head came to me and said, hey, you know, I, I'm actually leaving the, the organization. I'm moving on, taking on another role. And I had said, well, well, who's going to take over your responsibility? Well, I get a phone call. It is the president's assistant saying, uh, president wants you in the, the, in the conference room. I said, oh, okay, I'll go to the conference room. So I walked down to the conference room. I open up the boardroom there. And there's like 50 people that are sitting there. And the president says, Everyone, I want you to, to meet your new manager. You already know him, but he's Rich Stamets. He's going to be heading up uh, ENO as well. And I thought, wait a minute. So now I'm running small business DNO. Now I'm running small business, you know, and I've got now like, I don't know, 50, 60 people that are now reporting to me and I'm just this new guy. So I, I was luckily had some great people around me again, very key. Make sure you have great people around you because they knew the technical piece. They knew everything else. But fortunately, I was able to stay in that department for a while. But as you might imagine, things started getting a little bit crazy. Uh, at AIG in early 2008. And then I got another phone call 
from the president saying, well, the person who was running the sales team is leaving, and we want you to take on the sales team as well. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I've got Dino. I've got Eno. Now you want me to take over the sales team? I did that for a while as well. And then I said, you know what? I think my specialty is going to be on the sales side, not necessarily running DNO and Eno. So they brought in a great person to kind of help take over both sides. And I kind of embraced running the sales team, uh, the small business sales team at AIG. And that was a very interesting time because we were only selling one product. It was a digitally enabled product, which was very different at the time. So quick story there. Most of the business that small business was doing was very traditional. Brokers would send in applications to underwriters. Underwriters would then review it, rate it, and then send it out. AIG had a small excess product that was the first digitally enabled product that I think AIG had out there in the marketplace from a commercial perspective. And what that simply allowed brokers to do was to go onto the AIG website, enter in information, and get umbrella quotes back out quickly. So that time, though, technology was new. Brokers didn't really necessarily understand it. And AIG was not necessarily a well-known name in the small business area. So the, the, my sales team was responsible for going out to both wholesalers and retailers, training people, looking for opportunities to, to grow this business, training them, and then, and then basically making business plans, providing them service, et cetera. And that's really, I would say, my first real foray into running a, a larger sales team. It ended up being, I think, about 36 or 37 people across the U.S. Which is a good-sized sales team. So actually, I want to chat about that. But before then, I want to go back to this on, so you had a division, you had the DNO division. So that was new to you. You'd never done DNO before. You took on another division. What's going on in your head at that point? You go into this boardroom yeah. and you're taking on the, another division. What's going on in your mind? I thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I am, uh, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. This is a, a very different way of running an insurance company than what I was used to. I mean, it was basically a battlefield promotion at that point, right? You're like, you're not sure what you're doing in a particular area. I mean, I was certainly a student of the business too, believe me. I was reading books, learning as much as I possibly could, talking to everybody that I could. But I just thought at some point, the water levels are going to rise to a point where I'm no longer able to take on air. I'm just going to be taking on water. So I did express my concern saying, hey, look, I can I can do this, but I want to make sure that I, that I want to do a great job and I can't do all of that. There's too many spinning plates. There's too many moving parts. I really want to be able to to focus. So they, they, they recognize that as well. They knew that they were giving me a lot back then. But you used it as a huge catalyst. I did. Yeah. This is a, a, an old source. Like one of my first, I was, because uh, I was an agent and then I uh, moved after that. So I, I was started out as a, as a field agent doing face-to-face -face sales at, at Northwestern Mutual. And then I moved over to, I started my own company partner as an entrepreneur do with a completely digital sales for life insurance, 100% selling over the phone and digitally. And then I went into to get into the insure tech side for the first time. You know, they were like, hey, so do you have any B2B experience? I had absolutely none. And you know, I was like, well, you know, I've, I've got a, a lot of connections in this space. I didn't. I had a friend that had connections. I was like, I'll help you out, man. Just get the job. And like, okay, well, we're going to send you to a trade show. So I got the job, sent you to a trade show, never done a trade show. I bought this book. It was it's the oldest, most old school book on trade show marketing. I think it was called like B2B trade show marketing. I did every single thing in that book. I cold called every single person there. It set my entire year and and just like similar to what you just said. So I think that's such a good takeaway is, you know, sometimes those opportunities happen, right? You don't know when they're gonna happen. When you first look at it, it may not even look like an opportunity. And it's like, what do I do? Well, there's two things that you can do. You can not take it or you can give it a shot. And worst case scenario is doesn't work. It was too much. It was work. Like you didn't get the resources, whatever it may be, or it does. And sure, maybe you're underqualified when you first go into it. But if you're a student, just like you just said, and you give it a real shot, Sometimes that luck will be on your side. Luck, hard work, whatever you want to call it, all put together. It's a little bit of everything. And it sounds like, you know, you made sure that if you're in that scenario, then you're going to take advantage of it and, and roll the dice to see how this can go. Always. At, anytime I look at anything that's that any kind of challenges ahead of me, I always look at myself as a student. You've got to be able to be willing to admit what you don't know and then just do the hard work and just just reading the policies or getting into the code or whatever it might be, learning something new every day. It's not always easy. Some, not everybody likes to do that, but that honestly, that's what keeps me motivated. And that's really what I would say has really kind of helped me through my career because at AIG, that was really my first foray into, I would say, a larger commercial 
applications in software. Now, certainly at CNA, we had small business system, which was absolutely fantastic, but that was kind of already made and it, it, it was created. And I basically helped manage the application of that, but I, my hands weren't really in that mix where at AIG EXS policies, that, that system was already created, but uh, myself, certainly the uh, the gentleman who was running the division at the time and the underwriters, they had the ability to make changes to that system. And that to me was a spark. I thought we can really control how our underwriting gets digitized so that we can help make the process of acquiring insurance for our brokers much more seamless and more intelligent, quite frankly, because I think the challenge that a lot of folks have in manual underwriting, when I was underwriting or managing, a, a, a go back to those DNO and EONO days when they had like 50 people out there, you could ask 50 underwriters, what, how are they going to under, uh, underwrite and assess a certain risk? And you might get 50 different answers. But when you program almost like a, an aggregate of information, you're going to get a very consistent answer every single time. It's much easier to control the destiny of, the, of those decisions than it is with 50 different individuals. And that's kind of, for me, was the spark that really kind of got me interested in the insured tech space. In fact, when I go back to those days, I can remember a conversation which will kind of lead to sort of like where I, where I went next. So I happened to be at a QBR or a quarterly business review with the head of, um, of the US operations for AIG. And this person asked me, this was before the insured tech space was there. And I, I'm a little bit of a geek at nature. I started off being a comp sci major in college for about five seconds, realized I didn't want to code, but I love <laughs> technology. So fast forward to those days when I'm sitting in the boardroom at, a at AIG, and I was asked the question, you know, so what does really AIG need to do to get to the next level in this space? And I had said to this person, I said, look, I said, honestly, I think that the, I love all my brothers and sisters in IT at AIG. I said, but they've got such a huge job just keeping the systems going. And at the time, what you really needed was this innovation. You needed something completely new, new systems. Third-party data was really becoming a cottage industry, opportunities to actually plug in information digitally that was actually could be required in a digital underwriting format that might not have been readily available to an underwriter before. It was really kind of becoming a thing. And so what I had said at the time, I said, look, I said, I think what you, what you really need to do is take small business out of AIG rebrand it because at some point we're also going to be a direct-to-consumer play as well, not just a business-to-business -business play. Surround that uh, a few smart underwriters, digitize their thought process, pulling in third-party data sets, um, and then, but, but then program it so that it's simple and easy to use for our brokers and eventually for consumers. And those words came back to haunt me because when I was at AIG, I had moved on beyond small business, was in the specialty team really in a, a sales and distribution or strategy and distribution role. I was there for a couple of years, loved every minute that I did it, worked with some of the great people within an AIG, worked for some of the aerospace, environmental, surety, trade credit, some really interesting areas of business. After about, I would say, six major layoffs at AIG, I was eventually one of the babies thrown out with the bathwater, and I had to kind of look myself in the mirror and say, okay, what's next? You were pretty much, you had gotten to the top 2% of the organization. You would love what you were doing. Now, what are you going to do? And those words that I had echoed just a couple of years prior to that in the small business uh, team, this idea of InsureTech was kind of coming together. And I saw an advertisement for a company called Hamilton USA, which was actually in my backyard in Princeton. And I thought, well, it's a startup. I've done a startup before. I kind of knew where that ended. But Brian Dupero was one of the founding principals. And I had known of Brian. Uh, I had never met him uh, personally, but knew he was a big player at AIG previously, big player at March previously. So his, his name had a lot of gravitas. So when I read and saw what they were doing, which was literally InsureTech, it was used, they were creating new systems. I said, I have to go work for that company. I need to go work for that. So imagine going from a one of the largest insurance companies on the planet Earth to all of a sudden going back to a startup again. And But I did, and I was excited to go do it. So I called and said to someone who I found Ed Polkstennis' uh, number online, and I called Ed and said, hi, you don't know me, but I want to work for you. And with that came an opportunity to go interview over at Hamilton USA. I got through some interviews and actually took a job that wasn't really even something that I wanted. I was with the company that I wanted, but it wasn't the role that, that I necessarily wanted, but I wanted my foot in the door to take it. And that was, I was helping to manage a program team. And it wasn't the most exciting thing for me to do at the time, but it was something that I wanted because I knew I could get an opportunity to work in the insure tech space. And somewhat ironically, five days after I had started, now again, remember my story from AIG, small business telling the story, this is what we're going to do. 
Brian Dupro with his background, AIG, et cetera, and at Hamilton USA. And Brian was in our office Monday after I, st- I started. Brian was in the office at 7.30 on a Monday. And I thought, Brian's typically in Bermuda. What is he doing here? And within a half hour, I knew because uh, the team, the buzz was, is that there was a memorandum of understanding that had just been signed by Hamilton USA and Hamilton USA and AIG, and that uh, Hamilton USA was going to become the small business solution for AIG. And I thought, wow, interesting turn of events. At first, I was a little angry because I thought, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm working at the company that's now going to be the small business solution for AIG that I kept telling everybody this is what we need to do. And I was apparently my voice wasn't loud enough or strong enough to really be heard. So when I left to go to that company to kind of be pulled right back in, it was somewhat of an ironic uh, situation. So did you get pulled back in? What was that like? Well, I, I would say, uh, without telling too many tales out of school, I would say that uh, there were several ex-AIG folks at Hamilton. And when some opportunities came to work with uh, the folks at AIG, unfortunately, we weren't being brought into into the room. I was getting a little bit frustrated. I kept volunteering to say, hey, look, I was in small business. If we're going to talk to AIG small business, I really want to be part of that process. And unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out the way that I wanted. So unfortunately, I ended up looking for an opportunity elsewhere. So from there, well, actually, I want to fast forward a little bit because you mentioned you clearly weren't able to get, you, you wanted to be in this tech, you wanted to be in this insured tech side. And you're at two of the major ones. So you went to, you had to join Attune. So Attune's for, for the people that are, are familiar, Attune's a pretty, so a pretty prominent insured tech. They were definitely one of the big ones when a lot of insured tech was getting going. You had to been there pretty early. So I did. So I'll, I'll continue the story to kind of quickly come back to Attune. So I w- when I left Hamilton, I got a call from an ex-AIG friend of mine who is now at Star who also had wanted to really push small business. And the way in which it was described to me was like, Rich, Star wants to go. They want to continue to grow their small business. This job has your name all over it. We want to, we want to bring you in. So I had an opportunity to go work for Star. I was there for 11 months. Some things were happening there too. I really, They really wanted to go direct on the direct-to-consumer. And unfortunately, uh, the budgets that were allocated just weren't really enough to the area that we wanted to. And again, this is a lesson learned. Never burn a bridge in insurance always do your best that you possibly can. And hopefully you have a good reputation to a point where as Hamilton was thinking about basically becoming, they were all actually, uh, AIG, Two Sigma, and Hamilton were coming together to form a tune with the backing of of AIG, obviously. And the team there said, well, let's call Rich and see what's going on. I had the HR person come to me and ask me how things were going at Star. And I hesitated to answer. And he said, great. (laughs) Because normally I'm very positive. I'm like, I'm usually saying, hey, things are great. So we knew when I didn't say things were great immediately, he thought it's like, there's an opportunity. So we said, <laughs> would you consider coming because there's this new company being formed called Attune and we need someone who is going to head underwriting and we would love for you to come back. And I thought, wow, again, what a great, incredible, personal compliment to have left a company and only for them to ask you to come back, which that at the time, that was not a very common thing. So I was very grateful to everyone involved over at Attune, uh, who was who were, they were forming Attune to come back. And again, startup, I was employee number seven at that point. So, and we literally had an accelerator and that was pretty much all that we had. And within a couple of years, we turned that into a pretty strong, I would consider it to be a very strong underwriting engine, leveraging a lot of third-party data uh, that many of the companies that even today aren't using. So you brought up an interesting point. It's so true. And it's burning bridges just in general it always amazes me how often those relationships come back around at times where you just don't expect them ever. And when you're wrapping up a company, sometimes it can feel like, like it's like, oh, I just like it'll feel good to go out and just do what I want, whatever that may be. But the reality is, end that as strong as you possibly can, even if you know you're going to go, whether it, whatever it is, end that as strong as you possibly can, because those relationships come back around. They always do. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I've never understood why anyone would take their foot off the gas ever. It, even if you're unhappy, you know, there's times when I've been unhappy in my career, but I'm still showing up. I'm still giving it my all. I want to make sure that the only thing you really have at the end of the day in insurance is your reputation, right? So if you damage that, it's you're never going to really be able to recover from that. And why would you? I don't get excited by shorting anybody. I get excited by saying I've done my best. I've given the organization everything that I possibly can. And sometimes that's good enough. Sometimes it's not good enough, but it's everything that I have to offer. And I just, I've never gotten excited by doing that. And I certainly don't want to ever 
burn a bridge or be cross with someone because at the end of the day, we're all trying to do something that I think it's positive. And if I'm not your cup of tea, that's fine, but I'm, I'm not going to spend my time trying to either win you back over if, I have, if I've kind of exhausted all my op- options to do that. And I'm certainly not going to be bitter about it. There's no reason to. I, I completely agree with that. So you spent, you're almost at, at tuned for four years, which I say that because in the startup world, you know, you're looking at two, three years typically before you kind of go, what, um, what were some of the biggest challenges that you ran into just growing a tune in general? Well, a couple of things. One is that we didn't have a name in the marketplace, right? And you're trying to compete with some of these larger organizations. But I think for us, what we had was we had a strong underwriting platform and we had really good people. I worked with some of the smartest people ever at Attune and certainly Two Sigma, Hamilton, et cetera. They were just brilliant people all wanting to have a common goal, which was to being the best of what you could possibly do. And we did some crazy things. I mean, we did a Two Sigma the folks that are at Two Sigma, if your listeners aren't aware, I mean, they're a quant hedge fund, hiring, have hired some of the best and brightest people. And just kind of give you a quick example, even though I was the head of underwriting, I was asking their team one day to help us build a processing system. And I looked around the room and I'll tell you, I'm a, I would say I'm a B student from a liberal arts college. And yet every single person that I was sitting around the room with, Stanford, Harvard, Columbia, MIT, MIT double degrees, I mean, absolutely to the top of their classes. And I thought, how's this little kid from South Jersey sitting in front of these folks trying to direct and create something that's that's pretty magical. And I again, I still pinch myself about those days, but they went out under our direction and input to create some imp- in pretty incredible AI-driven underwriting systems. Pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the beauty of insure tech is you see some really cool things to getting pulled off. And so you, you left the tune and went to Thimble. So you went to another insured tech. What was that transition like just in general? Well, the transition was interesting. I loved everything at Attune, but I knew that my time was pretty much up as the head of underwriting. It was time for me to, to move on to another opportunity. And so I was I was interviewing and ironically, the chairman of Thimble had actually come to me at an insured tech conference a couple of years prior to that and had wanted to talk to me. I was coming off the stage and he said, hey, I'm going to be there at the end of that day. Can we, can we grab coffee? So uh, and he showed me their application at Thimble. And at the time, I thought it was absolutely stunning. I thought that the UI was amazing. I had never seen anything as slick as that. But I was still the head of underwriting ever at Attune. And I, I kind of carried that badge of honor. I thought, you know, thank you for the opportunity. I'm, thank you for the inquiry. But I really wasn't interested. Well, when the time came to, and again, not so ironically, when I thought it was my time was up at Attune and it was time to move on to another opportunity, Thimble had reached out to me again. So the timing could not have been better. It was I was literally getting a phone call when I thought, okay, I think it's time for me to go. And so the transition was pretty easy. Going to Thimble, I had I had known some of the team there before. I had some great interviews with that team and was very excited to get to know them as well. So, however, because of basically non-competes, I wasn't able to do anything on the underwriting side. So I took a business development role, which was very different again for me moving from head of underwriting over to business development. Yeah, you've made that kind of change between that sales and underwriting throughout your kind of your your whole career. Now, now you've moved on to Arch. How is it going from, you know, you spent the past what four or five years in insure tech at two really high growth insure techs and then moved over to Arch. How's that transition been going into a much larger company again? It has been absolutely fantastic. The reason I'll, I'll tell you why. As anytime an opportunity pops up, or at least I anyway, I go on to LinkedIn and I start to see, okay, who's at this company? Who's at this company? And when I first went on to LinkedIn, and I, I had over 30 some odd contacts at Arch already. And I literally every person that I that I that was on my LinkedIn connection, I thought, oh, top of the game, absolutely fantastic person. And I've been doing this a long time, 30 plus years. So there's going to be some people that you're going to run into that you're not necessarily going to be the most friendly with or not have had the most most greatest experience with. That was absolutely not the case with me at Arch. Everybody that I knew there was absolutely fantastic. So it has been incredible to kind of get back into the traditional side of insurance. I get pulled into some conversations on InsureTech once in a while, which is great. Hoping to contribute because at the end of the day, you know, I have several skill sets in my quiver, hopefully, and I, I love to build things and I love to create new things. So anytime I can offer any of my information into back into Arch, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Gotcha. So for you, it was, you're getting the opportunity to work with a lot of people that you know, really enjoyed working with. And it is true, right? It's when you think about it, whenever you leave a company or whatever it is, it's the people that you remember. It's the, that's a lot of times what's 
which not and I'm not saying like there's not some awesome mission driven companies, but it's the people that made it enjoyable. At least that that's the been that's the way it's been for me personally. A hundred percent. I'll give you a quick story on that one. I mean, going all the way back to my caliber one days, I mentioned that there was someone who I had worked with at the time. We were newish to the company, had a had basically a blank slate of how to create something, and that was probably almost twenty years ago. Well, I just brought that person back on to my team, and she's been here now for just about a month, actually, as of yesterday. We were at lunch yesterday catching up over some things, and it's amazing that 20 years can still go by, and you can still have what feels like this lifelong friendship and understanding and this idea of you both want to create something that's better than what you had before. So we, we both share that same vision. It's just incredibly rewarding that you can basically continue those those relationships going forward. I love it. So Rich, the last question that I want to ask you is if you could have a conversation with your younger self, whatever age, totally up to you, what would you say to that person and what advice would you give them? All right. So I will actually give you two answers. One is a joke. One is not a joke. One, I should have been an insurance broker. I would have made a heck of a lot more money than what I <laughs> than what I do work on the carrier side. Yeah. I've been in many really large, expensive cards and on, on some big boats of some uh, insurance brokers, not so much on the carrier side. So Half half joking, by the way. The other part is is really remain a student of this business because remain a student and because you have to learn something. Things are constantly changing all the time. I think I think the one compliment that I really appreciate people, some of my friends told me recently is that I continue to like reinvent myself. And I appreciate that compliment, but I would almost change it a little bit in that I don't know if I necessarily reinvent myself, but I understand that I'm a student and I have to evolve every day and that there's so much to do and I know this may sound a little bit hokey, but that's really what gets me out of bed every day. I get excited to learn something new, to accomplish something, to build something, to reestablish an old relationship that I had. It's just, it, it is, it, that is, that is who I am. I love it. This has been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Colin. I really appreciate it. I love this topic and uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely.